Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Connie Mack, The Turbulent and Triumphant Years, 1915 to 1931, Norman Macht. Norman Macht, author of Connie Mack, The Turbulent and Triumphant Years, 1915 to 1931. This is volume two in your planned three-volume biography of Connie Mack. What's so interesting about him that merits so much uh, treatment? I didn't know what was so interesting when I got into it. It started out to be a 350-page biography. What I found was this was a man who had never been accurately represented as a human being, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a manager of people. He instituted management principles as an eighth grade dropout, just instinctively, that today are taught in business management schools. And he was doing all this stuff 80, 90 years ago, just on his own, and I learned what a complex person he was, and I learned how much misinformation had been in most of the books and coverage and people's memories or absorption from what they had read. That was not right. So I set out to correct it. Um, another thing that made it so long was the man spanned the first 50 years of the whole American League and everything that went with creating it. He was in the middle of it. So it just growed and uh, into what is now a third volume, which is now complete but won't be out for over a year. So for people <clears throat> who are not familiar with him, can you give a little thumbnail biography of him? Where was he born? What did he do? Connie Mack was born in East Brookfield, Massachusetts, a, a <coughs> village uh, a little bigger than the studio. And uh, it was boot making and wheelwright and shoe industry area. His parents were illiterate. They were immigrants from Ireland. Um, his father never learned to read and write. His mother did in later years. And they had a large family, and he worked in the boot factory uh, after school and on Saturdays. But he took to playing what was then uh, a sort of a baseball game in a circle. I mean, we're talking about he was born in 1862, in the middle of the Civil War. so. They played a rudimentary kind of baseball, and he took to it quickly. And he quickly became the tallest kid. And he became the smartest in a baseball sense. He dropped out of school in the eighth grade. Uh, he worked in the, in the boot factory. And he played for the town team. 
and from there he went to the minor leagues and was purchased by the Washington team in the 1890s and from there went on into the um, uh, Pittsburgh club and began to manage there. This is in the 1890s and then was involved in the formation of the American League and the wars with the National League and was given the Philadelphia franchise to start in 1901, came to the city knowing nobody, having two months to sign players, build a ballpark, hire staff, sell tickets, and open the season. And he did, and the rest, as they say, is 50 years of is being the manager of the Philadelphia Athletics and part owner. Now, the the part up until 1914 takes place in your previous volume, but <clears throat> if I remember, in 1914, from the previous book, they made the World Series? Yes. He, he had built one of the, I would say, the five greatest teams in baseball history. They won a pennant in 1910, 1911, 1913, 1914, and won three World Series, including two against John McGraw and the Giants, and lost in the first World Series sweep to the Boston Braves in 1914, which was the end of that successful period and the end of his establishing the athletics and taking them to the top. So it seems an appropriate time to break it. Who were their stars during those years? Home Run Baker, Eddie Collins, Eddie Plank, uh, Stuffy McInnes, first baseman, um, Jack Barry. Uh, this was the so-called $100,000 infield of McInnes and Barry and Collins and Baker. And pitching? Chief Bender, Eddie Plank, Jack Combs. Now, if you can, you take us to a 1915 baseball game. If you walked into the stadium, what would the stadium have looked like? Where was the stadium? What did ticket prices cost? What was the game like? By that time, Shy Park had been built. Shy Park was built in 1909. It was the most modern, grand edifice, not only in baseball, but probably in Philadelphia. It did not have the right field uh, high fence. It did not have the second deck of the bleachers. It had a second deck behind home plate. Uh, it was considerably smaller, but it took up a whole city block. And there were no signs. There were never any advertising signs as long as the A's owned it. And other than that, small scoreboard out in right center field and flagpole. Um, the field itself was pretty much the way fields are today. What did it cost to get in? The bleachers were 10 cents, 25 cents was the general admission. And then they had some pavilion, some what we call box seats. How are the rules different than they are today? Not a whole lot. No designated hitter, which incidentally, Connie Mack was in favor of and was pushing it 
as early as 110 years ago. Wow. But somebody said, don't fool with the rules. The game's all right the way it is. And it's supposed to be played with nine men. And so, but he, he was in favor of it. Not to give old men or older players a, a, an extension of their careers so they could just de-age, but to give younger players some experience at bat and to save his pitchers from batting. He didn't want them, especially on a hot day, go up there and don't swing. He didn't want them wearing themselves out on the base pass. You talk in your book about a couple things, a scuff ball, a shine ball, and then a spitball? Things that were outlawed in 1920, but were very much in evidence in those days. And they were playing, the batters were hitting against the ball that never left the game. And it became dark, it became full of tobacco juice, became lopsided, became mushy, and they were still, still hitting it. Some of them were hitting it pretty good. Scuffball was either on the, on the cleat or on something sharp. The pitcher would scuff it to make it wobble a little bit. Shine ball was a spot rubbed on it to shine it. Maybe a little emery, maybe a little sandpaper. These things were legal. The, was it the dead ball then? It's called the dead ball era. It wasn't called that at the time. But the lively ball era coincided with Babe Ruth coming on the scene in 1920 and 21. And they're really, the live ball is a misnomer. The ball wasn't juiced up at that time. But the change in the rules of marking up the ball meant that when a ball was scuffed or discolored at all, it was thrown out. So for the first time, the batter was always seeing a new, clean, white ball, and hard still. And that's what made the difference. When you were putting these books together, where'd you go for sources? Primary sources? only. I found so much misinformation in so many books, general history and about Connie Mack or the A's, that I said, I'm not going to repeat other people's stuff. I'm going to go to, and that's what took 28 years. I'm going to go to the original sources. And these were the days before the internet, when all you had was microfilm readers and libraries and grainy old microfilm. And I talked to as many players as I could, but I found one player who was there in 1914. Nobody ever heard of him, not a star, but he was there. And I could get firsthand stuff from him. Now, of course, memories change over the years and imagination begins to take over, but at least it's a primary source. And I could check his stories. Some of them checked out, and some I couldn't prove, couldn't validate. But firsthand information is what I relied on. What was sports writing like then, in the 1915s, 1920s? 
It was highly competitive. There were eight, nine, ten newspapers in the city. Very colorful. They had acres of space to fill. So they could go on and on and on. They could write about the players as characters. Some of the writers were very inventive. They would make up stories, but you could tell they were making them up. They were, they were, they were not uh, making fun, but they were painting some of the characters like Rubadell and some others in broad strokes and getting the essence of these characters even though there was some fiction in the stories. But there were a lot of writers who went on in other journalistic fields, like Westbrook Paler, for example, who started out as sports writers. Ed Sullivan was another one. Um, but it was a, a golden age where all these guys, Fred Reeb and these fellows were all starting out. Were they were there times when they were critical or, or caustic like sports writers sometimes get now? Yes. Yes, they could be. And some of them made their names that way. But they lived with the players. And in spring training, they roomed with the players. And occasionally on the road, they would room with the players. So there was a closeness that is long gone and a trust that is long gone. Well, getting back to the, the first year in your book, 1915, the, the A's had just lost the World Series and Connie Mack has a reputation for having dismantled his club. And it's one of the things I found to be not true. He sold one player between the end of 1914 and the start of the 1915 season and that was Eddie Collins. And he sold them mainly because the Federal League was waving big chunks of money at players. And Mac knew that Collins, they had been after Collins, he was a big star. He knew that Collins could make more money than he could afford to pay him. And he told Collins that I have these offers. The Yankees wanted him, the White Sox wanted him, and he went to the White Sox for $50,000, which was a huge amount of money in those days, and he didn't want to go. And Mac told him, you can make a lot more money in Chicago, but if you really don't want to go, because Philadelphia area was now his home, if you really don't want to go, you don't have to. And Collins said that when Comiskey offered me this huge outlandish salary, uh, they'd have locked me up as a crazy man if I didn't take it. Do you remember what the salary was? I think it was $25,000, and I think it, it might have been 30000 There was no talk of him becoming the manager, but in a few years he did become the White Sox manager. Well, why does Connie Mack have the reputation for having dismantled the team if it was just one player he sold? Because somebody wrote it years ago and other writers copied it. That's how things get perpetuated. That's how myths get perpetuated. And there are plenty of them in his case. And it's still believed today. I read something this week about how Connie Mack 
blew up his team after the 14 World Series. And he didn't. And he went into the 15 season favored by a lot of writers to win the pennant again. Now, he lost Bender and Plank, who jumped to the Federal League. He offered them around. He said, anybody in the league who wants them, I'll sell them to you if you can sign them. And he had no takers. And he was through with them. They were now, they've been with him 14, 15 years. So these weren't any young stars that he was letting go. But he knew that they had offers from the Federal League. He knew they were going, and they went. But he had a whole bunch of good, young, strong-arm pitchers ready to go. And they didn't come through for him. And once the season was half over, and they were not coming through for him, he said to himself, I might as well start over. So he sold Jack Barry, who also was an, he was not old in years, but he was an old player. He was a beat up player. And he sold Bob Shockey, who was, who had not been great for him, and he was disappointed in him. And other than that, he kept some of those guys till 1917, 1918, from the 1914 team, and he began rebuilding. But to say that he, and there was, there was another story that had absolutely zero basis, that he, the story was that they had fixed, they had thrown the 1914 World Series, and this is why he blew up the team. Well, there's not a scintilla of evidence of that. Never has been. And there was no indication at the time of any suspicion. So it's a, it's a nonsense story. But it's an excuse given for maybe that's why he blew up the team. So it's a double header of nonsense. Neither thing happened. But they live on in, in the baseball literature. There's a lot of instances like you just talked about and in your book about buying and selling of players for cash, which doesn't happen a lot these days. Was that more common than trading? Yes. There was usually cash involved. But it was not usual that it was just cash. It was usually cash and players. And, and Mac usually wanted players in exchange. And sometimes he couldn't get what he wanted. He didn't want what they were offering. But uh, when he needed money, sure. He sold for cash. Where did he get players? Part one, he got them as green as he could find them. Colleges, which didn't have big programs in those days. Sandlots, kids out of high school. He was known as a cradle robber. And that's how he built that 1910-1914 great team. And the only veteran he had was Harry Davis, who was a first baseman, but again, getting older, and McInnes replaced him. That's part one. He tried to do that after 1915, and it didn't work. 
and he wound up finishing last seven years in a row. Did he lose his touch, lose his eye for young players? That's what they thought. They weren't there, number one. For some reason, they disappeared. And when movies began, silent movies began, kids weren't playing ball anymore. They were going to the movies. And the movie stars, the silent Western stars, became their heroes. And World War I disrupted him, too. He had a lot of good young prospects who lost it while they were in the service and came back and didn't have it. None of them panned out. So here he is now, 60 years old, at a time when the life expectancy was in the low 60s. He's 60 years old, and he says to himself, it doesn't work anymore. I have to change. And he did, and he adapted. And he, he said, I've got to look for proven players in the high minors and I'll have to pay big for them, and I will. What were the minor leagues like then? The minor leagues were competitive. There weren't as many of them. They had veteran ballplayers as managers. They had scouts. And they were signing good players and selling them for good money to higher minor league clubs. So the, the A's did not have a triple-A club that was their They had no club. farm system, zero. They had agreements with some lower minor league clubs where they would give them $1,000, $1,500 for the year and have their pick of one or two players off the roster. And that's how he wound up with Baker, Norman Baker. But they, they lag way behind, that's another story, but they lag way behind in the farm system area. So Connie Mack changed, and he paid a big price for Al Simmons, and money and players. He wouldn't hesitate to give them the players. And he paid $100,600 for Lefty Grove, and this is the way he did it. He it bought from, from the Baltimore Orioles. He had a good working relationship with them. They were a minor league team. Minor league team, yeah. But in a sense, he bought and developed minor league stars, let's say. Completely different from what he'd done before and built his second great team, the 29-30-31 team. You said, uh, who did he buy for $100,600? Lefty Grove. And there's a story in there about the, the, the amount. The story is that the amount they agreed on was 100000 and that Jack Dunn, <clears throat> the owner of the Orioles, called him and said, the story is that the Yankees bought Babe Ruth at about well, earlier than that for $100,000, the biggest price ever paid for a player, I want to beat it. Will you give me an extra $600? And Connie Mack said, yes. It's one of the stories that I could 
verify. If I couldn't verify it, I wouldn't use it. But it's one that I could verify. You also have a story in there that Connie Mack used to always refer to Lefty Grove as Lefty Groves. Yeah. And it's used as an illustration of the trouble he had with, with names. He had trouble with some names. A guy named Addy Joss, for example, J-O-S-S, he would always call Josh. In later years, Lou Boudreau was Lou Bordier. He did have trouble with some names. But the fact is that Grove's real name was Groves. And in the minor leagues, he was Groves. And in Baltimore, he was Groves. So he was bought as Groves. And in the early newspaper accounts, Philadelphia Major League Paper, he was Groves. So he asked the newspaper men to drop the S. Groves did. Mr. Mack had nothing to do with it. But it's another one of those myths, legends, call it what you will, um, about Mr. Mack. That is another reason that it took 28 years to get where I am on this, to try to find out what's myth and what's real. It took time. So was Connie Mack wealthy that he could afford to pay all this money for these players? At that time, he was. Um, they were a very profitable franchise the first 14 years in Philadelphia. He made all his money from baseball? He made, he, no, he did oh, basically. He and John Scheib did a little real estate dabbling in development. He had a bowling alley, which he sold. But there's an interesting aspect that I found out. I just this past year solved a mystery. The concessions income has always been an important, it could be as much as 30% of the total profits of a ball club. It still is important today. But I could never find in the records any concessions income for the athletics. Where was it going? It took me years and a lucky break in, in the ledgers, the old ledgers of the A's, which had been thrown away in Oakland when the team moved to Oakland were resurrected. Somebody had fished them out of a dumpster 30-some years ago and had them stored in the garage and finally sold them in an auction. And I found out about it, and I managed, after a whole lot of months of <coughs> persuasion, to get the guy who bought them to lend them to me. What a gold mine of business information it was and transactions and receipts and everything. And I found little entries way back every year of $1,000, $2,000 that John Scheib was paying the athletics. Now, John Scheib was, part of, was Ben Scheib's son, and he was a part Co owner. Yeah. Was paying for the concessions. Now, what did that mean? I never found in all the receipts any other reference to concessions. Where was it going? I finally, finally found out.
It was all going into the pockets of the stockholders. All the 54 years. And so the athletics as a team never benefited by it. But still, yes, they made a lot of money. They paid big dividends in those first 14 years. Connie Mack became a wealthy man. Did they have beer sales? No, they never did. And from 1915 on, they began losing money. A lot of money. And, but Connie Mack wasn't losing it personally. He didn't lose his money, but they weren't paying any more dividends or anything. He lost his fortune in the stock market crash. 1929? So he was no longer, he, he was proud that he had a million dollars. He was worth a million dollars. He told his son, I'm proud I've made a million dollars. Not for myself, because he was always a simple living man for my family and their security, because he had eight kids. And he was never wealthy after that. Never had any money. But the team itself was losing a lot, a lot of money. Where'd they come up with the money to, to buy people like uh, Jimmy Fox or Al Simmons, you said? They borrowed. And came the Depression. They owed the banks hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's one reason in 34, banks were calling in loans. And he had to sell. That's when he sold Grove and Cochran and Simmons. He didn't sell Fox, not until three years later. But that's when he sold those guys and Dykes. What was Connie Mack like to be around? He was a gentleman at all times. He had a good sense of humor, but it was, he never laughed out loud. He chuckled a little and he smiled. He must have been good company because the friends that he had who invited him time and time again to their houses when he was on the road in Ohio, in, in Missouri, in Illinois. They were friends for life. 30, 40, 50 years, they were friends for life. And they visited him in Philadelphia, stayed in his home. They took him out. They adored him. He was great copy. The writers loved him. He was good copy. Um, they, some of them, they came to realize that if he denied something or told them something that wasn't true, that he had to because it might involve a deal that he was not at liberty to release until the other party to the trade or the deal released it or agreed to release it. So sometimes he was bound to that. But the astounding thing I found was that everybody loved this man. Players, writers, other baseball people, um, people who knew him glancingly, people who knew him for 50 years. I've been accused of, of growing so affectionate about my subject 
that it came through how much I liked him. And my answer to that is, no, I never knew the man. What's coming through is what I found. I found these, these hard-boiled veteran newspaper men who were using the term in print while he was alive. Talking about how he was getting older, or maybe he should step down. They would say, I don't want to see him go. I love the man. And they're writing this. Uh, toward the end of your book, you say, at the conclusion of the first third of the 20th century, Connie Mack was the most admired and respected man in America. And yet at that point, he had had losing seasons like yeah. eight or ten years in a row. But by then, people had read about him so much, and the magazines were very prolific in those days. I mean, no radio and TV and all that. They had read about him all over the country. And, and I mentioned many examples of people who were naming their children for him in the 20s and 30s still. He was that revered. And when they would go, players told me in 1937 they were on the team, they would barnstorm from the West through these little towns in Texas, Oklahoma, and all, coming home from spring training in these cars. And the word would be passed along by the telegraphers at the stations that the athletics train when it was going to stop in these towns. And they would stop, and Connie Mack would get out to stretch his legs, and there would be hundreds of people on horseback, in horses and buggies, on carts, on foot, waiting for a glimpse of this man. And he'd go down and talk to them, and they just revered him. What did he do to deserve that? He was kind. He was generous, and he would be written about that nobody in a hotel, on the road, anywhere, child, teenager, old man, old women, nobody, stranger, friend, acquaintance, ever approached him without him getting up and greeting them like he was so happy to see them, like they'd been friends forever, and where have you been? And this spread. And some of the newspapers and magazine writers picked up and saw it for themselves, and it spread. And I found it to be true talking to people who were in their 80s and 90s who remembered knocking on his door when they were 10 years old, finding out where he lived, knocking on his door, and being invited in, sitting down, talking baseball with him, just, just like they were the most important man in the world. You have one story here. In 1910, Stanley Baumgartner, a 15-year-old Chicagoan, eager to make his high school team as a pitcher, waited until the athletics were in town to seek some advice. He found Connie Mack on the boardwalk outside the Chicago Beach Hotel, and Mr. Mack turned and smiled at him. Encouraged, he approached, Mr. Mack, could you tell me the secret of pitching? Mack put his arm around the boy's shoulder. Get the ball over the plate, he said. Don't be afraid to let the other fella hit it. Remember, you have eight men to help you out. Fourteen years later, the boy would be pitching for Mr. Mack. He was uh, the, um, oh, the Chicago writer. Um, Ring Lardner? No, the Studs Turkle the trilogy. Um, 
he's, he's got a character in there in Chicago who wants to be a ball player and some and he has somebody giving him advice go see Connie Mack the only manager that the young fellows should ever try to play for is Connie Mack and this is an work of fiction so he has that reputation and every youngster he treated as kindly as he did Stan Baumgartner it didn't matter what age they were he had time for all of them. Well, I ask you about two other cases. One is Sam Crane, a 21-year-old infielder up from Harrisburg. He had signed him to uh, signed him in 1914 and farmed him out. He went on later to kill his girlfriend. Can you tell that story? Um, Sam Crane played. He was an infielder. He played briefly for the A's for a couple of years. Um, his girlfriend jilted him. He found her with her boyfriend in a cafe in Pennsylvania. Uh, shot her, I don't remember now if he shot the man too or not. Uh, was guilty, uh, went to uh, Eastern Prison in Pennsylvania. Connie Mack kept in touch with him. Connie Mack appeared before the parole board um, and, and Crane got turned down a couple of times. Into the 40s, Connie Mack is still championing his cause. Finally, Mack got him paroled, promised that he would have a job for him, and did. And Crane got out, and Crane worked for him for the rest of his life. This is the kind, kind of man he was. That kindness, that generosity, um, is going up. His daughter told me this. His son-in-law told me this. Um, Ira Thomas, one of his best baseball friends, uh, nephew told me this. Many times after a game, when they would drive him, couldn't drive him home because he wouldn't drive. He thought all other drivers were crazy and he wouldn't have anything to do with them. He would, he would tell them to go up the street, stop here. He'd get out. They'd see him go up the steps. A woman would come to the door. He would hand her an envelope. She would be wiping their tears with her apron, and they'd go from here, there, and everywhere. He was dropping off rent money, coal money, food money to people. This was him. He never talked about it, but some of these things came out. He was, he was known for being a, a kind, generous gentleman despite being a big celebrity. And who else in the country was like that? Nobody. He always wore a suit when he managed, never wore a baseball oh, yeah. uniform. Well, was he the only one, the only manager who did that at the time? No. Um, that, that began in Milwaukee. He was managing in Milwaukee. He went down to Milwaukee to learn how to manage men because he had a fierce temper, which you wouldn't get anybody to believe today, including his daughter who just passed away a few weeks ago, who was 99 years old, when I told her that, because she didn't know him until he was in his 50s. When he was young, he had a fierce temper, and he had a foul mouth, and try to tell them that today, too. But anyhow, 
He lost his temper with his players after games when they made mistakes, when they pulled bonehead plays, when they didn't hustle. And he'd go in the clubhouse and chew them out. And they were resenting it. This is the 1890s. And he saw it. And he said, I got to do something about this. It's one thing I have to say about him. He could adapt. He could change. And he's in his late 30s now. So he said, the quickest way to prevent this from happening is not to go in the clubhouse after the game. And to avoid going in the clubhouse after the game, I'm not going to wear a uniform. So I don't have to go in and change. And from that time on, he didn't. What was he like during a game? How, how did he manage as the game was unfolding? He would yell at the umpires. He got thrown out of one game managing for Pittsburgh in the 1890s. And the police had to escort him off. I mean, he, he really, he really blew his top and really made a scene. But he would call the umpire when he was in a suit. He couldn't go out there. But he would send Earl out or somebody out to tell the home plate umpire, I want to see you. And the umpires would come over. And as he got older, they would were more respectful of it. They would come over and listen to what he had to say. And then they would go back. And sometimes after a game, he'd go, he'd either beckon to them after the game, tell them what they did wrong, or he might stop by the umpire's dressing room, tell them what he thought they did wrong. And uh, this was his way. During the game, he was calm but fidgety. He was fidgety inside, he was be squirming. He would cross his legs. He, he wouldn't be wild and he wouldn't yell. His, his boys, could they could ride the umpire and he wouldn't say anything. But he was squirming a lot. It must have, how he did it for all those years uh, without getting ulcers, I don't know. Did he talk to his players? Did he direct them about how to play the game during the game? Uh, yes. Uh, he would, particularly with the young ones, when he was teaching them, because it was a baseball school in the early days with these young, raw kids. He was teaching them all the time. And he would tell a pitcher, uh, I don't think I would throw the curveball to this hitter anymore, and something like that. Yeah, he, w he was in the game, and he wanted his players to be in the game all the time, too. There was a time where one player later on he saw I was always doing something with the scorecard, and he didn't think he was paying any attention to the game. So he called him over, and he said, what are you doing, son? And he said, I'm keeping track of where each pitch is thrown and where, where the batter hits the ball. Because Connie Mike kept score, but without much detail. And Connie Mike said, that looks like a very good idea. You keep doing that. And, he, and that guy, that was Charlie Metro, and he became a manager. Now, when uh, they were last place from, was it 1915? 15 to, 19, to 22. 22. When did they start showing signs of life? When he began to buy the players. I think Simmons was the first. Did he try to turn the team around in those years? Or did oh, yeah, kind of in his old way. With, with lots of green young kids and, and minor league hotshots, uh, 
game winner, a guy who pitched a perfect game in a Class D league, who was billed as a 20-year-old phenom. He bought him. Well, the guy turned out to be 26, number one, and never did anything in the majors. But yeah, he heard about this guy. Um, so he, would, he was trying to do it cheaply, too. I mean, you know, inexpensively. You know, a Class D or C player. He was, he was fishing in those waters. He was looking for another Baker, another Collins, another Barry, these kinds of guys, and he wasn't finding them. So he said, I got to start looking for guys with more polish, more experience. So I think Simmons was the first that he bought. And then they began to climb one rung at a time. They finished seventh, sixth, fifth, I think third or fourth the next time. And now they're head to head with the Yankees. And he's ready to win in 1926. 1925, they surprised him. He had rookies. Now imagine this is three rookies. Cochran, Fox, Grove. These are rookies. That's Mickey Cochran, Jimmy Fox. And Lefty Grove. Lefty Grove. Yeah. He didn't expect them to win that year, but they started out like a house of fire, and they were leading in August. And then the pressure, the inexperience got to them. And they, and they, they tailed off, and they lost it in September. And they had really surprised them. They didn't think they were quite ready yet. 26, he thought, we're ready. But out of the blue, the Yankees came along, and the Yankees just nosed him out. So then he thought, okay, 27, we're going to do it. We're going to get him. Well, the Yankees caught lightning in a bottle, and Ruth with his 60 home runs, and Gehrig with his 47 home runs, and they ran away from it. Then he never had a chance. But then 28, it became very close again. Well, and, and since we're at 1927 and 1928, people probably don't remember that Ty Cobb played for the Philadelphia Athletics in those yeah. years. Um, Cobb and Tris Speaker both were the president of the American League, Van Johnson, wanted to drum them out over a scandal that we can't go into now, a betting scandal that they weren't guilty of. And Judge Landis exonerated them. And they became free agents. And a bidding war began. And Connie Mack wanted them both. He thought, these two veterans, with my good young players, were going to beat the Yankees. Well, he paid them big salaries. They did their job. But as I said, that was the year that the Yankees just ran away. Well, I did look it up, and, and Ty Cobb, at the tail end of a long career in his waning days in Philadelphia, in his first year in Philadelphia, hit, I think, 357. He did his part. He had a lot of multi-hit games. His legs were going, but he did his part. Did, did kids learn from him? Yes. Because he had a reputation for being kind of a jerk. Um, um, I don't think jerk is fair. He could be very pushy with his advice. 
And he could mess up a player that way. And some players didn't want the advice. And that's where he got the reputation. But when he came to the A's, and he knew he had that reputation, he told Connie Mack, anybody who comes to me and wants advice, I'll be glad to give it to him. Otherwise, you're not going to have any problems with me. And he didn't. And who was the one person who so idolized him that he eagerly lapped up all the advice he could get from him? Al Simmons. I want to read you something about <clears throat> the, a story you have in your book. On Ty Cobb's first day in an A's uniform, 1927, 50 newspaper and movie photographers were there to greet him. When Thomas Edison showed up, Cobb joined in the festivities offering to pitch to the 80-year-old inventor. Mack led Edison to the left-handed batter's box, took it back from Zach Wheat, and handed it to Edison. Wearing a straw hat and small catcher's mitt, Mack stood behind the plate. Cobb stood about halfway to the mound and lobbed the ball. Edison took a mighty swing and connected. The ball hit Cobb in the shoulder and knocked him to the ground. Amid cries of, sign him from the spectators, Cobb picked himself up and shook hands with the smiling Edison. Thomas Edison. Edison was a great, Edison was stone deaf, incidentally. He was a great um, fan. He and Henry Ford would go to spring training in Fort Myers because they both had homes there. And, um, and Connie Mack would, would, would visit. And in fact, um, Edison invited the whole team, their wives and their kids and everybody, to his house. And there's a picture in the book taken on his front porch. But, but Cobb was, was very willing, very compliant, very you know, well-behaved, for lack of a better word. And the A's players, almost all of them, they'd hated him when he was on the other team, but that's true of all of baseball. When he gets on our team, now he's our guy. We don't hate him anymore. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I interviewed an author on this program who wrote a book about the 1929 Philadelphia Athletics, claiming they were the greatest team in the history of baseball. Can you talk about the 1929 A's? Yeah, I would. I call it a wash. I, I say, if you take the 29-30-31 teams collectively against the Yankees' 26-27-28 winners collectively, I think the A's have the edge. Um, but to take a one-year-to-one-year -one -year comparison, um, that's hard to do. Um, the A's definitely had the, A's, the edge in the pitching, no question. So who were their stars? Cochran, Fox. Catcher, Mickey Cochran. Cochran, uh, Fox and Gehrig, that's, no, that's a wash. Um, Max Bishop uh, was, was Clearly better than um, than um, Mark Koenig. Um, Joe Bowley, that's kind of a wash. Um, was Jimmy Dykes with the team? Then? Dykes was third base. Dykes was the probably the greatest utility man there ever was. He played everywhere. I think only one year that he played one position all year. And he succeeded. Uh, uh, Connie Mack is the manager yes. after many, many years. Yes. Um, the outfield, uh, Simmons was superior. 
um, um, in center field was um, um, that's a little tough puzzle to do. So um, I'd, I'd have to go back and look. Um, so, but but I I consider it. Uh, they clearly had the edge at catching and pitcher. And and the infield, Yankees infield was not great. Who was the Yankees manager then? It was Joe McCarthy. Hmm. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, Miller Huggins. Miller Huggins. Yeah. So, uh, how, what was their? Uh, how did they do in 1929? They won going away, or was it a close pass? Yeah, 29, 30, 31. They they won pretty pretty handily. Um, Ted Lyons, Hall of Fame pitcher. I asked him years later, who was the toughest lineup you faced? Because he had pitched through all these years, 20s and 30s, into the 40s. He faced the 37, 36, 39 Yankees, 27, 29 Yankees. I asked, who was the toughest lineup you ever faced? And he said, the 29 Athletics. Did the crowds come back? Did they did they fill the stands? Did they start making money again once they started winning? They they made money then. Yes, they they made them they made the most money in twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight, because this is you know the golden the roaring twenties and everybody had money. And unfortunately, what happened was. Max signed some long-term contracts for some of these guys. And when the market crashed, attendance fell off. Even though they were still winning. Even though they were still winning, attendance fell off. And he began to lose money, and he stuck with these contracts. And 32, the bottom falls out. and. He reached his peak. It's one place where his timing was terrible. He reached his peak, and he was at the center of the stage at the very time that the light went off and the show was over. And, uh, and it just was bad. Poor timing, not on his part, but the way the world went. But they did win the 1930 World Series? They won 29 and 30. Is that against the Gas House Gang? Was that? 30. 29 was the Cubs. 29 was when he beat the Cubs in five games. And then he, he beat the uh, Cardinals the next year, Gas House Gang. And then Pepper Martin beat him in seven games in 31. So your book ends in 1931 with them having uh, lost the World Series. Again, it seemed like an appropriate time to cut it off because it's the end of the show. And he will never have another team like that. He'll never have another run like that. And it's another 1915 kind of years, the early 30s, where he's back on the bottom again. And so it seemed like an appropriate time to cut it off. Did he ever consider retiring at that point? Because by then he was starting to get up there in years. No. He never did. He was sick. He, he was near death once, 39. He never did. There were, there were always rumors. Uh, 
I have it on good authority that Connie Mack is going to step down next year and, and name so-and-so as his manager. And that, that became a perennial story every fall and every spring. He's going to step down. He's going to step down. He never said he was going to step down. Before this interview started, you said you had just finished Volume 3. Yes. And it's about the same 650 pages, something like yes. that. Uh, how do you how, how do you keep that from being depressing if it's his his declining years and the team is lousy all those years? Um, you keep it depressing partly by talking about the players, which I've done all through it, and it's one of the things that I've come to learn that that readers appreciate. Treating the players as people also and describing them. What kind of people were they? Not just what kind of players they were, but what kind of people they were. Um, how is Connie Mack dealing with all this? His sons begin to come into the picture. The war comes along, and now he's got to deal with another war. He had to deal with the Spanish-American War, um, World War One, now World War Two, and he's losing players to the war. Um, changes are taking place. How does he deal with the coming of night baseball? How is he dealing with the coming of radio and television? How is he coming with dealing with the coming of flying? He made his first flight in a private plane on his birthday. These are things that are confronting not just him, but all baseball. So a lot of it is taken up with his role, his position, his role in the meetings, and how he changes over time, and how he dealt with the, this newfangled radio thing. And all of that will have to talk to you about next time you're on the program because we're out of time, unfortunately. We've been talking with Norman Macht. He is the author of this book, Connie Mack, The Turbulent and Triumphant Years, Part 2 in his three-volume biography. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.